We've called this mini-series in the tale chapters of Galatians, the Freedom Primer. And the, the reason is because here, Paul, after laying out and walking through what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ and made available not just to the people of Israel, but to all nations, he now tells us how to walk in it, how to respond to it, how to live it out. And he frames it all in the concept of freedom. And so chapter 5, verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. And verse 13 of chapter 5 reiterates, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Jesus announced himself, Whoever the Son sets free shall be truly free. But what does that mean? What does that look like? How does it play out? What does it not mean? All of those are the things that Paul is addressing now. And so he's already said, if we have been free, then don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't put yourself again under the law. Don't receive the marks of the old covenant in circumcision. But then he goes on and he says, also, don't use your freedom for the sake of your flesh. Don't use your freedom, he says, as an opportunity for the flesh, but instead, through love, serve one another. As I mentioned in our opening sermon to this series, if you want to sum up what Paul's answer to the question, what now? He uses three basic words. Okay? The words are by faith, through the Spirit, working through love. That's what freedom looks like. That's where it's going. And so we've been looking at a contrast And so the first week we saw that it was uh, a life of death and not circumcision. That the problem with the law was that it didn't go far enough. But only Jesus could do what the law could not do to set us truly free. And then we saw last week with the help of Pastor Andy that it is a life of love and not a life of selfishness. That it isn't the freedom to do whatever we want because whatever we want is actually part of the problem. We are constrained and prohibited by and even enslaved by our own desires. And so there's no freedom to be found there. And now we're going to see that it is a freedom, a life, if you will, of the spirit and not of the flesh. And this contrast you'll see even as we read the passage. But I want you to notice how strong the dichotomy is here. It is not flesh and spirit. It is flesh or spirit. Read with me, beginning in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you were led by the Spirit, you were not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, as Paul and your word lays out the resources we have available to us to live a life of freedom, a life of love, a life of obedience to you, I pray, God, that you would help us to avail ourselves completely and totally to these resources, that we more and more with every passing day would embrace and experience the freedom you've given us in Jesus Christ, to be what we were designed to be as your image bearers, as your children, as your representatives. We ask God that you would send the same spirit that Paul talks about in this passage to teach us and instruct us in this word so that we may understand it and apply it in Jesus' name. Amen. We could honestly spend months in these ten verses. There is so much clarification, correction of misunderstandings, uh, illumination, and truth contained in these verses. It is worth thinking through and using this to grind away the misunderstandings that sneak in. And remember, that's one of Paul's primary concerns here. He's not writing this as some sort of generic ethical instruction to Christians he barely knows. He is writing this as situationally, specifically addressing problems in the Galatians church. And we see two of them in the text of chapter 5. The first we mentioned a few weeks ago, a new group of representatives from the church in Jerusalem have shown up and have basically said, We're so glad that you found Jesus, a Jewish Savior. If you're going to respond to him and follow him, you need to take upon yourself the Jewish law, the marks of circumcision. And in doing so, you will be made righteous. That's problem one. But problem two is the church actually seems to have some behavioral issues. There's some infighting, some selfishness, some problematic behavior that is causing tension in the community. I'll show you how I know that. Because Paul doesn't waste words. And so notice what he says in verse 14. He says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Okay. Now, obviously, biting and devour, consuming... Those, that's all things that we could contrast with loving behavior. Whereas love builds up, verse 14 sees a people that tear down. But I would suggest to you that that seems to be a real problem in the church in Galatia. And maybe it's even through the introduction of these uh, troublers who bring this new doctrine and make this new demand. Maybe it's like what we saw with Peter and Paul when the t- tables were divided and Jews were on one side of the room and Gentiles were on the other side of the room. Maybe that's all that's being stirred up. But he points out that there is a community behavior that ruins, ends, eats alive, cannibalizes the community. 
And he calls them instead to a community behavior that builds it up, establishes, edifies it. Okay. We see the same thing in the very last verse of chapter 5. Notice what he says. After saying in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Look at the contrast there. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so I think it would be right to say that everything we read in chapter 5 that he lists as a work of the flesh, not all of those are equally manifest in the Galatian church. But envy, conceit, backbiting, devouring, those seem to be present enough that Paul says, all right, I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. Because the truth is, my Jewish buddies who came in and said, you need to keep the law, they may be making a proper diagnosis, but their medicine is no good. They're going, oh man, this community is a mess. You should subscribe to the law. And Paul says, no, but I will show you, to borrow his language to the Corinthian church, a more excellent way. Now, I want you to notice the power of verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Notice what Paul doesn't say there. He doesn't say, walk in the Spirit and don't satisfy the desires of the flesh. Right? Paul isn't saying there's two alternatives here, and I want you to choose the right one. The right one is to walk in the Spirit. The wrong one would be to satisfy the desires of the flesh. That's not what he says. He says, walk in the spirit and you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. This isn't alternate choices. This is a solution to a problem. And the problem he labels here, the desires of the flesh. And that's not the only place he mentions it. Look at what he says uh, in verse... Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The desires of the flesh. Now, especially if you have an older translation this morning, like the King James, it may say the lust of the flesh there. And that almost always gives us too narrow of an understanding of this concept. Because we think of the lust of the flesh and we think maybe primarily of sexual desire, or at the very least, primarily of physical desire. So the lust of the flesh is things like gluttony. And that's right, but it's not merely things like gluttony, right? When you look over the works of the flesh that are labeled here, it's more than just body sins. It's social sins. It's even worship sins as idolatry and sorcery make the list, okay? But what is going on here? What Paul is addressing is the human problem as we experience it, which is that we want things that are not good. We want things that are harmful for us. We want things that are a poor representation of who God is. We want things that are harmful for those around us. We want things that other people have that we have no right to. Right? The list goes on and on. As Jesus points out, bad behavior is not the human problem. Even the big problems like murder, And lying and adultery, he says, come out of the human heart. They begin here. And this is actually what's wrong with the law. The law cannot change 
your desires. It can restrain them. And we experience that, don't we, even in the world that we live in. This is the way that society in general works. We create law codes to restrain bad behavior. It's like putting locks on your doors. Okay. Have you ever heard the saying that locks are for honest thieves? Why do we lock our doors if anyone could just swing a hammer and break a window? It's because that level of restraint, not leaving your door open, actually does hinder people from stealing. At least the ones who don't want it bad enough. Okay. That's how law works. It's a restraint. It stops you from doing things you would rather do by imposing penalties and such on you. Okay? And so, the law is good at restraining the flesh. And that's why people who don't know Jesus can live decent lives. But it is a restraint of who they truly are. And I would suggest that is the remedial definition that you need this morning of the flesh. The flesh is who you are all natural. Inconcarne is what I usually think of, right? The flesh is in this flesh. The Bible has no problem with you being embodied. That's how God made you. And at the end of the story, when Jesus raises the world, that's how you will be, enfleshed. The problem is your nature is bent, skewed against God, against others, and towards yourself. The Reformers used a Latin phrase, curvitas en, curved in on ourselves. That we are focused on ourselves and at the expense of God and what he deserves and other people around us. This is the problem that Paul is addressing. And so I want you to notice that implied in all of this is more than just a solution that says, look, I know that you are sinners and you can't help yourself, so I forgive you. Now that forgiveness is clearly present. Paul spent chapters talking about it. The New Testament is full of references. I'll just give you one. John, in 1 John chapter 1, tells those who follow Jesus, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. My point here is not that forgiveness isn't a part of what God has accomplished in Jesus Jesus Christ. It's just not all he's accomplished. God doesn't want to just save you from the penalty of sin, but sin itself. God doesn't want to just put up with your nature. He wants to transform it. And the problem is that the law can't do that. It can restrain behavior, but it won't change your desires. In fact, Paul suggests in Romans, and you all know it to be true, that sometimes the law inflames your desires. Right? Because that's how rebellious we really are. Sometimes we see a sign and we go, that rule is stupid. I'm going to intentionally not keep it. Right? And we never would have broken the rule if the rule wasn't posted. Why is that? Okay. The law can inflame those passions. Now, again, recognizing the human condition problem that we all share, which is not, which is not as simple as... Let's come back to that, but look at verse 16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Do you see what that is? It's a way forward. It's a way for change. Now, there's a lot of questions that that probably brings up, but I actually want to ask one myself 
to kind of deepen the issue here. Does Paul say here that if you walk by the Spirit, you will not have the desires of the flesh? No. No. He says gratify. That's really important. Okay. Because what Paul is suggesting here is not some sort of lobotomy where the part of you that wants the wrong things is removed and replaced. It is the introduction of a new source from which to draw, not yet its replacement. What I am suggesting to you is that the Spirit brings something new. Look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. What's new there? The Spirit comes with its own desires. You see that? And they're opposed to one another. See, here's the thing. One of the places we can make a mistake, and this is why I emphasize desire, is we can think that as soon as you become a Christian and are regenerated, which is just a word that means made alive in the Holy Spirit, we can think as soon as that's the case, there is no old nature left. I'm a changed person, and so no more struggle. Or we think what mature Christian life looks is the end of fighting and we are just good people. But Paul labels here the introduction of the Spirit as the beginning of the fight. Right? It's the introduction of the Spirit that now there's opposing desires. Now there's a conflict. You know the animation with the little angel and the little demon on the shoulder in the fight? Paul would say that if that was a true illustration, it's only uniquely true of Christians. And you might go, now that's not fair, because all sorts of people have good desires alongside their bad desires, and I would agree. But when they fight their desires, they're playing for the same team. And that's, again, what the law can do. And so Paul says this way, he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the very things that I practice. Okay? That condition is open to all comers. Every human being has experienced that, where you finally identify something in your life as gross and dangerous and hateful, and you want to get rid of it. That's true. But at best, you can sabotage your flesh and restrain it. You cannot defeat it. Because there is no other team. It is like trying to put out a fire by adding more fuel. The flesh is still the flesh, whether it wants to play the part of Hyde or Jekyll. And so where God begins in the solution of salvation is by giving us a new nature that now coexists with the old nature and gives us a different resource to draw on. And again, notice it begins with desire. This is why Paul says in Ephesians that the Lord works in us both to will and to do. It begins with desire. Now, I can't speak for you, but when I became a Christian 15 years ago, I experienced this firsthand. And I will remind you that I grew up in the church. So I knew the rules of Christianity and the doctrine of Christianity. I did not know the Spirit. But when I received the Spirit... Because I took Jesus on as my Lord and Savior and recognized my need for that Savior. Suddenly I wanted things I'd never wanted before. 
I didn't just want things from God and was willing to do whatever it takes to get him to give me what I wanted. So, all right, God, I'll play by your rules as long as I get the reward at the end. I wanted to honor God because he was God. I didn't just recognize this as being a requirement for a good that I defined as good, but I saw the requirement itself as good. I didn't want to just have friends. I wanted to have a church. I wanted to be around other Christians. And I will tell you, that desire did not exist. Okay, Whenever I was in the church, I was in the church as a very happy outsider who was not like those people. Suddenly, I found these new desires to be with the people of God, to spend time with God, to read his word. Now again, this may take a level of honesty, but growing up in the church, I can remember specific occasions of thinking things like, it might be better if I don't read too much of the Bible, because then at least I can feign ignorance. But it's completely different now. Now I search the scriptures, not just to make sure that I'm, you know, keeping every jot and tittle, but because this reveals the God who loved me and sent his son to die for me. So the desires of the spirit are now present. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, the spirit lives in you and those new desires do as well. Now again, let's read verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Can Christians gratify the desires of the flesh? Yes. As we already saw, Paul says there's places in your community where you're clearly doing that. Devouring and consuming one another. Conceit and backbiting. Are the works of the flesh evident in our lives today? I imagine that they are. But Paul's point is here that there is an avenue or a means to overcome those desires and truly not gratify the all-natural desires, the desires of the flesh. He uses here a Greek construction in the grammar that is the strongest negation possible in the Greek language. It's the one that's often translated in your New Testament as by no means. Okay, So let me read it again. I say, walk by the Spirit and you will by no means gratify the desires of the flesh. That's more than just an avenue. That's more than just an available resource. He doesn't say, well, maybe this will help. He says, if you do this, you will not do this. By no means. Strong. Now, let's keep going. Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. In other words, wherever you are, whatever decisions you make in the Christian life, there is always going to be internal opposition to it. God gives you new desires, but because the flesh still exists, you also have the old desires. And so there's a wrestling match now. There's a problem. And any time that you want to do the right thing, the flesh is pulling you back 
And anytime you want to do the wrong thing, praise Jesus, the Spirit is pulling you back. That's what he's saying here. There's an opposition here. There's a fight. There's a war. But I want you to notice another thing. I want you to notice here that he doesn't say, you are at war, so enlist the Holy Spirit as a primary soldier or hero. In fact, notice what he says at the end uh, in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, here's something you can't see in your English Bibles. That word for walk is not the same word he uses earlier. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That word just means to walk in the normal way. It's usually translated as walking around or sometimes living. Okay? It's just a generic word. This second word in verse 25 is a military word. It means to keep the commands of or to keep in step with or keep time with or marching order. Okay. Here he sees the spirit as calling the shots and we as under his employ. Okay. And this is again what makes salvation as God has designed it in Jesus different from some sort of self-salvation through the law. Who is it that does the works of the law? The same one who does the works of the flesh. It's us. But Paul changes the description here and he says, no, 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 no. The Spirit is making you righteous. And we have to participate. That's why he uses the word walk. Okay? There's a part for us to play, but whose agenda is this? It's God's. Where does it begin with? Who's calling the shots? It's the Spirit. That change is important. Now, let's look at verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. I think by evident here, we could paraphrase, basically agreed upon. Broadly, across cultures, when we look at these things, they're manifest. If we say, where is the flesh present? And we look around the world, we won't have a hard time spotting it. Okay. Maybe even less of a hard time in 2020. Okay. But let's look at the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. A couple of things about this list. First off, notice that it ends with, and things like these. Is this a complete list? No. It's just enough to get us thinking, right? It's just enough to get us started. He assumes that we could go on and on and on adding things to the list. Second, I want you to notice how broad this list is, because although I said that the works of the flesh are evident, meaning generally agreed upon, it doesn't mean you won't find camps who will draw a line and say, yeah, but not these ones. So notice he, he talks kind of in four different areas. Okay. First, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. That is all sexual sin. Okay. And according to Paul, anything that falls outside of the confines of sexual activity within a marriage between a man and a woman would fall into that. In fact, Jesus would push it even into your thought life. And he would say, if you even lust after another person in your heart, you have committed sexual sin. And so here, there is not some sort of sexual freedom. Paul says, no, real freedom is found elsewhere. That's just the works of the flesh. 
And then the next two on the list, idolatry and sorcery, specifically involve worship. And we have lots of viceless in the ancient Greek world. Tons of them. The Stoics, Aristotle, uh, Marcus Aurelius. Everybody loved to talk about, here is the virtuous life, here is a life of vice. They all had these lists. Never once do we find these two items on a Greek list. Because idolatry, which just means worshiping this God and that God and the other God, that's just life. But for Paul, our relationship with God is also a manifestation of the flesh. And he labels here too, idolatry and sorcery. I would suggest to you just for shorthand, idolatry would be um, worshiping the wrong God or worshiping God in the wrong way. Whereas sorcery is making gods or gods or the spiritual beings or whatever a means to an end. Sorcery, or biblical magic, if you will, is about manipulating the gods to get what you want. So you please them on earth, so they reward you on earth. Okay. Anytime we make God a means to an end, just a divine Santa Claus, we engage with a magical understanding of the world, a sorcery engagement. Okay. But here, he recognizes those as being the flesh, and here's why. Because who is at the center? Who is at the heart? Who is at the end of both of these? Us. Either God is God and therefore worthy of our worship, or worshiping God is a means to self-worship. So those are the works of the flesh. And then I want you to notice that the longest grouping in here is intensely social. It has to do with how we treat other people. In fact, these read like community sins. Look at enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and things like these, these are community actions. They're social. Why are families a mess? Because of the flesh. Why do communities break down neighborhoods and nations? Because of the flesh. All of these things are manifest because of the flesh. James puts it this way. He says, why are there wars and fights and dissensions between you? Because of your desires. You have a civil war within that leads and spills over into the borders of other people's lives. But that's the problem. But notice here that Paul's vision of spirit-filled virtue is not just personal and private. He doesn't say when he goes on to the fruit of the Spirit that the fruit of the Spirit is piety and cleanliness and devotional habits. Even the fruit themselves are about how we engage within a community. Okay. Going back to our catechism this morning, that's because that's God's endgame. Not just righteous individuals, but a community that manifests who he is. And then the last two on the list. Uh, orgies and drunkenness. These have to do with being fully given over to bodily desire. In fact, both of those words, drunkenness and orgies, are both broader than they sound. It's not just about alcohol and sex with multiple partners. Uh, we could say drunkenness here, gluttony, and it would be synonymous. Okay? It's about being fully given into the most physical parts of yourself, which again are good. Eating is good. The fact that food tastes good is good. Sex is good. But when it becomes primary and focal in your life, and you're wholly given over to it, and your mission in life is now to just... Fulfill those desires. 
And so what we see here is a disordered human being from top to bottom in their most intimate relationships in the community at large with God and with themselves. That's the work of the flesh. And the problem that Paul presents to the Galatian church is that they think they can overcome the works of the flesh with the works of the law. But do you notice here how he uses the same language? The works of the flesh and the works of the law are synonymous, but when we get to the Spirit, it's not the works of the Spirit. It's the fruit. Okay? He's subtly making a connection here that's important. But notice, and this is important, as he finishes here in verse 21, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a strong warning. And apparently not the first time Paul said it. In fact, he doesn't just say that I said it to you before Galatians. He also says it to the church in Ephesians. He also says it to the church in Corinth, in Corinthians. He wants us to understand that the works of the flesh, if you live in them, if you walk in them, if they define you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you go, but I thought Jesus took care of that with forgiveness. Yes, but receiving forgiveness also means receiving the Spirit. And if there's no fight in you, maybe it's because you're still dead. And that's why Paul says this. He's not standing over this audience saying, look, if you don't get your act in order, he's saying, if you misdiagnose this and you're not yet alive, wake up, receive life. Right? This is not just a warning, it's an invitation because at this moment for the Galatian church, there is still time to repent and believe the gospel. But that just makes the stakes of Galatians that much higher. And we need to understand this as well because I imagine, no, I I can say with confidence, I know that if you read this list and you read it honestly, you're going to be able to stick somewhere on the list and say, that sounds like me. And again, that is what I would expect. Not because you are an awful community of people, but because that's actually how bad the problem is. That's what the Bible is committed to solving, is not just the hell issue, but the flesh. But, in contrast, he says, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. First off, notice that they're fruit. What is the difference between fruit and works? Works makes me think of a factory. Works are manufactured. They're accomplished, right? It's something we do in a very specific way. Fruit has a more natural relationship with who we are, right? A worker makes a work. A tree bears fruit, right? It it grows out of them. It's connected to the source. One thing makes us think of a factory and clamshell packaging, and the other makes us think of an orchard and fruit, okay? That's the difference here. And he doesn't actually have any problem with the idea of Christians working. In Ephesians, it says we're saved by grace, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and you were saved, he says, unto good works because you are God's workmanship. In Titus 2, it says that the gospel has appeared, training us to renounce all all ungodliness and zealous for good works. But he is trying to make a contrast right here. 
And what he says effectively is that the works of the law cannot solve the works of the flesh. In fact, they can often get bound up in them. It is totally possible to do the right thing the law requires in a way that denies its very heart because of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit, this is about you becoming a different type of being. The fruit of the Spirit begins in the desires of the Spirit and is accomplished as we walk with the Spirit, keep step with the Spirit, are in tune with the Spirit. Let me give you one more metaphor that I think is helpful. When you graft a branch into a tree, you take a healthy, fruit-bearing branch and put it into an unhealthy tree. Suddenly that tree joins with this and it's producing the fruit. But it could never do so without the graft. All of this is just kind of circling the drain of the truths that Paul is presenting here. But here's what I want you to recognize. That when we put the fruit of the Spirit as listed here with what he says in, uh, in verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, there's a clear picture of hope. In the same way, I think you could take this list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and you could say the harvest is a little light right now. You could pick one word and just say, I would love to see more of that in your life. I want to tell you this morning, you can. You can. That's the whole point. That's God's agenda. The fact that you have that desire, that you want to be more loving or more joyful or more patient or experience more self-control is the Spirit's work in your life, not just your need for the Spirit's work in your life. But I think this also gets us to the logic of what God is doing. What if God cares more about making you a righteous person than you doing righteousness? In fact, what if it's impossible to really be a righteous doing person unless you are a righteous person? That's what Jesus says. He says, does a thorn bush bear grapes? So God has imparted not a new branch that bears fruit, okay? Not Christmas ornaments that we throw on the tree and say, look, now we are beautiful that are unnatural and we're made in a factory but a change at the very root structure of who we are, a new source to produce through a new nature, a new fruit, a new outcome. But not next to you, not adjacent to you, in you and through you. This is the good news of the gospel. The way Paul says it is that God has given you his spirit to work in you. The way that Peter says it is that he has imparted to you his own divine nature. We are called to be like God. History is a failure of that. And so God says, let's try it again, but this time I'm going to help. This time I'm going to instill in you my own DNA. Don't overplay that illustration, but it's still helpful. That's what Paul is talking about here. And so I would suggest to you that you can look at this list of fruit as a personal wish list. You can own the desires for these fruit as being God-given desires. And you can expect that the Spirit is setting up your own life. Just like a good farmer would 
till and prepare the soil to grow these things. But it involves a conscious and continuous choice to resist one type of desire and to pursue another. In fact, notice what Paul says here. First, just a sideline that would be important to Paul, verse 23. Against these things, there's no law. He says, if your life looks like this, if you're bearing this fruit, what need do you have for the law? Like he said earlier in verse 14, he says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so if God has found a way to make you loving, then the law is no longer necessary to make you anything. That's what he's doing internally through the Spirit. But notice verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Very strong language. Stronger than we like to admit because we're so used to crucifixion. Right? Because it's at the heart of Christianity. But remember, these are Romans who have walked down roads and seen people hanging from pieces of wood as they die in agony. Now Paul had already said, I have been, Galatians 2.20, crucified to the world and the world to me. But the language here is different. There it's passive. I have been crucified. But notice the language here. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified. That's active. Have been crucified. That was done to you. Have crucified themselves. That's something you do to yourself. Okay. Second, I want you to notice here that he puts it in the past tense. Those who belong to Christ have crucified. Not will crucify. Not are crucifying. Have crucified. Now, the problem is, I look at that sometimes personally and I go, okay, it says that if I belong to Jesus, this has happened, but I don't feel crucified. I feel like the flesh is very present and powerful in my life. Here it says he's been crucified with his passions and desires, and yet that's where the problem is. Clearly from what we've read, Paul understands that, agrees with that, recognizes that these desires are present. Here's what's been helpful to me in thinking through this. Okay? In other places, Paul says that we died with Christ. That won't apply to what I'm about to say. So this is only to give you a margin of room to think through. It's not a perfect metaphor. But I want you to remember that crucifixion has a beginning, a middle, and an ending, which is rare for forms of capital punishment. Right? Crucifixion is a long process. But once it's begun, it's not the easiest thing to get out of. Okay? It's not like slowly poisoning a person a cup of tea at a time. You are nailed to a piece of wood and hanging until death. Right? Think of when we see the old movies about people who hang by the neck until dead. Right? Have you ever thought about the fact that they had to add that? Why? Because there was a loophole. If the rope broke, they're like, hey, I was hung. You can't punish me twice. No, 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 no. The purpose was to hang you until dead. Crucifixion, even more so. Hanging a person takes a matter of minutes. Crucifixion sometimes lasted for days. What if we read this this way? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Your flesh is nailed to the cross. It doesn't just have the sentence of death. It is in the process of dying. But it's not yet dead. 
This makes sense because in Romans 7, Paul says that what God has done as we died with Jesus Christ is he's rendered the old man, another word for the flesh, who you were, inoperative. Now, can your flesh still whisper from the cross? Say, hey, you know what sounds like a good idea? You know what would be really great right now? Yeah. But can he pin you to the ground and make you do it? No. I would suggest that's where we live. Our flesh has been crucified, but is not yet destroyed. And it will be. The gospel isn't just about what Jesus did or what Jesus is doing. It's also about what he will finally and totally do. That voice will not exist in your heart when Jesus returns. Those desires will die with you naturally. And when you're resurrected, they will not come back. So why does it matter then? Why does Paul need to tell us that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires? It's because we have a terrible habit to walk up to that cross and try and keep that flesh alive. Comfort it. Nurture it. Feed it. But you've got to remember that even though God and Jesus Christ did what you could not do, when you received Jesus, you took the hammer and you took the nails You hammered your flesh on the cross and you said, the old man is now dead. As Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In fact, in Romans, he says it this way. He says, even when I sin as a Christian, it's not me who does it, but the sin that lives in me. But what is that? That's a part of Paul that just has a death sentence. It's not the permanent part of Paul. It's the passing away part, but it's still there. Sometimes it still wins. And again, this is why we're waiting for Jesus. This is why salvation isn't done. It is doing and will be completed. But it doesn't change the fact that God hasn't just given your flesh a death sentence. He's begun the death itself. And what I would suggest to you is recognizing this, responding to it, resisting The passions and the desires of the flesh is difficult. But what's important this morning is that it's clearly possible. God is training you in a new way of being. He's saying, look, that ruddy old engine, stop turning the key there. I've given you a new one. It's got its alternate power system, and it runs the car just fine. But there's a part of us that likes the old rumble of the old engine. Part of us that likes how it used to bring us off on detours and take us to places we never should have been. So we make a regular and conscious choice to reject the desires of the flesh and yield to the promptings of the Spirit. But when we do so, we can be confident of two things. One, that it will work. That when you yield to the Spirit, the Spirit will be productive in your life and produce fruit. And two, that as you do so, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Is that because you're so great, so awesome, so mature, because you've worked really hard, because you've finally worked out your righteousness muscles? No, it's the gospel. It's the good news. It is fully and totally and utterly grace. It is not what you deserve, and it doesn't begin with you, and it won't end with you. Jesus is the alpha and the omega of your salvation. But we should 
walk by the Spirit if we live by the Spirit. If God has entranced or put in this new engine of life, we should drive it. We should seek to. Let's pray. Father, it's a weird place to be to read over the list of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit and feel such strong conviction. I think for many of us, Lord, we can look at 2020 in particular and we can see that there's places where the harvest is low. And at the same time, Lord, those of, you, those of us who have known you long enough, we have found fruit in our life that we did not know was possible. We have found peace in our life where there was chaos and discomfort. We have found joy where there was despair. We have found patience where we said, I couldn't possibly endure even another minute. We have found self-control where there used to be indulgence. And we have found so much love. Lord, if anything, those two realities should just amplify the promises that are given to here, given to us here. If we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. God, we want to be your disciples. We want to take upon you your yoke because it is easy and your burden is light. We want to be transformed more and more into your image. We want to be made like God. We want to imitate our Heavenly Father, however you put it, Lord. We want it in our lives and we want it today. So we pray, God, that even right now you would help us to affirm and to recognize that in Jesus Christ our flesh has been crucified with its passions and desires. And that you have given us your spirit that we should walk in. We pray this in your name. Amen.